If you're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad and in New Orleans, there is a long tradition going back at this stage hundreds of years where the Irish have been very much part of the uh, New Orleans story. And I'm sitting across from Matthew Hearn, who has recognized that to keep that story alive, uh, there needs to be a place. And he took the initiative to create the place uh, on County Street. Matthew, first of all, thanks a million for taking the time to come and have a chat and tell us about this. Um, where we're sitting at the moment uh, is the Irish Cultural Museum in New Orleans, which you founded. Yes, sir. What was the inspiration? What was the drive, first of all, or what caused this to happen? Well, um, you know, there's, a, like you said, there's a long history of the Irish. The Irish had a significant influence on New Orleans. And just as I got older and realized that the stories around the dinner table and all the Irish names in my family, uh, something that wasn't, wasn't recognized, uh, those are stories that we usually kept among uh, you know the New Orleans families, but it wasn't something that was taught in the schools or something that you heard much of. Right. So the actual, the actual, you know, people think of New Orleans as Spanish and French, which is what the original colonial uh, colony was. Um, but uh, as I got older, I realized, and you know, and studied and read and researched that uh, you know my family wasn't atypical. You know, yeah. well, when you say your family wasn't atypical, as I understand it, um, it wouldn't have been the accent I hear coming from you wasn't necessarily the accent you were hearing around the table. Right. Your your dad your dad's accent was different. Right. It was a, right. a good strong Irish accent. Well, my actually, I mean, my mother is uh, one of these families that is several generations out of the Irish Channel. Right. Okay. So the Irish came in. Uh, in the huge, huge numbers and during the famine years. Okay. Uh, New Orleans was the second largest uh, Irish community after New York. Okay. Uh, right before the turn of the century. Uh, the census in 1860 had almost 24% of the city born in Ireland. And so, I mean, it's pretty much an Irish city, right? I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge Irish influence. And, uh, you know, and again, you've got to recognize America. Uh, the first large immigrant group it had ever seen in its history with the Irish, in uh, huge, large, large numbers. So anyway, so you have uh, a lot of these Irish that came through New Orleans. My mother, like, actually, my mother's family was here a generation before. She wasn't. She was what was considered maybe the lace curtain Irish okay. on on her mother's side, her father's side. Um, so her mother's side was McGuire's, her father's side was Daly's, and they were all from Tipperary. Okay. Um, but you know, so those people grew up in these in these Irish neighborhoods along the river, which is called the Irish Channel now, as mm-hmm. they made a little bit of money and had some success after a couple of generations. Most of them were able to move a little bit further away from the river. You know, if you just follow the churches, you can you can see the migration of the Irish communities. So if you look and to then, see when the churches were built, you know where they, when the the Irish moved. Exactly, we have okay. an exhibit up there that shows the the churches and and, uh, and the communities, and you kind of see exactly how they started coming along. The the Irish Channel and then moved, moved you know, into the uptown areas. Um, and, uh, you know, so anyway, so that, that's where my mother's families come from. My father's family had come over right before World War II. He fought in the war. After the war, he was down here and met my mother and stayed. So, 
you know, but you know, so I guess to answer your question, um, there there was a huge amount of heritage that I was very familiar with, and 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 not necessarily what people you know like me uh, would be familiar with, but nobody else recognized it. No, mm -hmm. very few books written about it. So you hear a lot about the American Irish experience. And there are lots of books written about that. Mm -hmm. you, you, you hear nothing or know nothing about the New Orleans Irish experience. Mm -hmm. and there's very few books written about it. So, but not the, really. And your dad was from Formoy. Uh His family his was. Family. Yeah. So, given when he came, at the time that he came, which is relatively recent to your mum's family, would you say that the, right. the two time spans helped create in you uh, a more a tighter connection to history? because of your dad um, yeah yeah I mean my father where my mother was married much more entrenched in New Orleans Irish yeah. stories and families and names and neighborhoods my father would comment things like well thank God my family left Ireland would all be uh, eating potatoes and pretty hungry about now I mean <laughs> right because I mean Ireland is I mean you know better than I do it was still a third world country before the war is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, well it, yeah it, it would have been before the war certainly there was rationing during the war yeah uh, very much so where uh, butter sugar all sorts of things were being rationed yeah, so it wasn't until the Celtic Tiger came about, right, that you had some kind of strong economy. Yeah, it was growing from about the 70s, it started to grow up, and then the, it That's collapsed right. again. But yeah, it That's was, it was really, yeah, it is recent. Yeah, because again, Ireland is just, we're in 2020. Uh, it's 99 years old. Like, in a sense, it's 99 years old. It's not 100 years old yet. That's real. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, coming out of that, you, um, you were bitten by the history book. Well, my father was a professor. He was an educator. Okay. I mean, I'm a construction engineer by trade, general contractor. Um, so, yeah, I'm not an academic in any sense. Uh, you don't need to be to be bitten by the history <laughs> book. <laughs> but, you know, we grew up around the table discussing things that would have been more academic in nature, I guess, as opposed to things that would have been... Uh, you know, we talked more about history, I'd say, than we did than we talked about, uh, you know, sports or, or uh, things like that. You know. So then the, the building we're in, say, the, um, with that background, uh, you wanted to tell the story. What was the spark that pushed you over the line to say, I'm going to do this? Well, I mean, it was a vacant piece of land that we had had for a while. Wasn't really sure what to do with it. Did some research and discovered that it was actually run uh, as a boarding house, and it would have been predominantly Irish immigrants that were coming to the city. So it was run as an Irish boarding house uh, by a, a lady. And I've got the interesting. I could show you the, uh, the history of the property, but she was um, a freed slave. She was referred to in the documents as a former slave of. And then 30 years later, when she sells it, she's referred to as a free woman of color. FWC is what they put. So this was in the early, in 1803, which was the Louisiana Purchase. You had uh, a former slave owning property uh, for 30 years um, and running it as a boarding house um, for about 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought that was fascinating. So we did mm -hmm. some archaeological work here, and we found... All kinds of fascinating things. We found some of those Irish clay pipes. If yeah, the Dugin. What's that? Dugin. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yeah. From what I understand, they they were uh, used uh, 
uh, as, as, a, as a, you know, during an Irish wake and buried mm -hmm. with the body, and mm -hmm. then I presume that when someone would go off to America, they would have an American wake, mm -hmm. and it would be the same process, but instead of putting them in a coffin, you put them in a coffin ship, right. you put them right. in, a, in, in a ship to go off to America, never to be seen again, so we found those here. So, uh, you know, Spanish reals, old flints, some old flintlock guns, I mean, all kinds of interesting, fascinating things. And uh, I've been a Hibernian for a very long time. Okay. I've been involved with the Ancient Order of Hibernians, and our national president, uh, Judge McKay, is actually here in New Orleans. So, you know, I just thought it would be, and then, you know, I've got three boys, you're always trying to uh, keep them sitting down and having conversations and, and, and you know, pass along heritage and, and, uh, and things that you feel like are important. And it's really hard to do that nowadays, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just thought, uh, you know, an actual physical structure that they were involved in and building because they all grew up as tradesmen and are involved in the construction business together in the family. Uh, so, you know, they all work together to build these buildings. We put yeah. back... What we could figure out are pretty much the same buildings that would have been here back in the 1830s and 40s. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's it. It was just kind of a um, kind of way of, of, uh, of, of keeping the family focused, uh, giving something back to the community after Katrina, uh, doing some quality re redevelopment, uh, uh, you know, just that kind of thing. So you mentioned that uh, this house had been uh, a boarding house and the Irish had been in here back in the early 1800s, so this is even pre-famine. And I know there were waves of Irish there who, were. who left uh, and were very much involved in canal building here and up through the Erie Canal and into the Lachine Canal, Montreal, and Rideau Canal in Ottawa, the Trent Severn. So they, they, they were canal builders. Right. The navvies, they call them. The navvies, yeah. So we're, at what period would the navvies have been here? Well, uh, the, um, what was the, the New Basin Canal was built right after the Louisiana Purchase, and right. it was built predominantly with Irish labor right. that was coming in. Um, they estimate as many as 30,000 died. Now, some of the academics will argue about that. There's no way of really knowing. They kind of, you know, not surprisingly, I think, suppressed a lot of the logs and, and, and uh, you know, the Yankee Daily Field logs or anything like that of, of the people and what they were doing. But there were large losses of life because of the horrible conditions. Mm -hmm. you know, it was out in a malarial swamp, mm -hmm. uh, dug predominantly by hand. Um, so anyway, that was that was right after the Louisiana Purchase, which was 1803, right. um, and it was dug because it, it you know these ships would have to um, you couldn't get back up the Mississippi River with a sailing ship. You'd have to come through those lakes, uh, you know, through Lake Bourne, Lake Pontchartrain, Lake Catherine, then Lake Pontchartrain, and then you'd come up the Bayou St. John, and there was an old French canal that let you get back to the river okay. where all the warehouses were and the docks were, so, you know, goods could be loaded, and then you could go out the river, then you would go down the river to go back out. Okay. Uh, so, but that was such a problem, it was silted in, it was very small, it was owned by multiple landowners, were always, you know, refusing passage. So the first thing they did is an Irishman, um, what was his name? Uh, he was from Tipperary, actually. So he put together a scheme, uh, and there was a report done by the War Department of the United States, and he, uh, I believe it was actually financed by the Hibernian Bank, which was one of the very first banks for Irish immigrants to, to keep their money in. Um, and then, you know, within six years, they built this in, in, in incredible canal that really 
opened up the waterway, opened up trade. It was, uh, it was during that manifest destiny period of America where you had this huge expansion and growth pushing westward. Um, so it was a, an extremely important maritime achievement and waterway that was in existence for over 150 years. I mean, it wasn't, I was very young and they had just filled the thing in and they, they put, put the interstate. So if you look at the I-10 interstate, mm-hmm. it pretty much follows that new basin canal. They filled it in and built an interstate. Okay. And that okay. was done in the 50s um, right. around that time. So around that time you mentioned that uh, there was a large influx. What type of records were you able to find, if any, uh, relating to that period? And what did they tell you? Um, it actually have some estimates done for the study that was looked at by the War Department of the United States, and it, it you know, it, and you know, it gives you quantities of uh, uh, material being moved, and it's calculated in wheelbarrows. Okay. So, you know, that shows you how many people were needed. Yeah, I mean, right, right. right. Um, so then, uh, traditionally, what tends to happen with migration is somebody or a group from a particular geographic area in Ireland would go somewhere and once they arrive others from the same area tend to follow. That's true. Was there a predominance of people from any particular area? You mentioned like that there's a temporary connection with the, the dailies and the rhymes on your mum's side. Uh, was there a predominance from any particular parts of Ireland to here? Uh, during what years? During the famine? During, during the pre-famine even. During well, because I, like you said, you're correct. I mean, well, the Irish have been involved in the, in, in the Spanish colony. I mean, the second governor of, uh, Spanish governor of Louisiana was O'Reilly, was a guy, uh, you know, from Ireland, right. grew up in Ireland, one of these military guys who, I guess, his family had to leave, the, leave Ireland and went into service for Spain and France, like so many of them did. Um, so anyway, but, but you've, you've had Irish involved in yeah, long, you know, long before the famine, Irish, and then, like you said, there were waves of the famine. It was mm-hmm. just the perfect storm, I guess, was in forty-seven. Yeah, forty-seven. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, and I. There was, there was, uh, I, I think there was so many people coming over from Ireland. I think it was more than just one local area, okay. like, like you would have. With, with, with some migrations. So then coming up to the famine, well prior to the famine, uh, other than the construction of the canal, were there any significant um, projects or happenings that would have been, uh, uh, you would say, that stands out in history and is something that we need to uh, pay attention to as well? Well, I think that new basin canal is probably the most significant one, right. the larger one. Um, were there any churches built in that period that still survived? Well, there was, there was during the antebellum years, it was called the golden era of church building. Okay. So even to this day, you've got a lot of vibrant communities. You might have went to Mass this morning in one of them. There's three of them within walking distance of here. But there's these gorgeous churches that were built um, pre-Civil War uh, in, in, the, in the 1800s. Again, after the Louisiana Purchase, the economy just boomed up until the Civil War. Um, one of the most significant cultural, uh, you know, centers of the United States after New York, and um, so. But but it's interesting that these beautiful churches that you have in this city, this gold era era of church building, were done by these poor Irish immigrants mm-hmm. that were leaving their country, you know, with probably very little money, very little skills mm-hmm. for the most part, at least the majority of them, not all of them. And the first thing that communities did was build these gorgeous, beautiful churches, which I always thought was amazing. You mm-hmm. know, maybe as a way of showing how well they're done in the, in the United States, uh, in addition to, you know, trying to gain favor 
um, in the afterlife. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, know, so, but anyway, to this day, though, a lot of those churches are still um, in use and still vibrant. And despite uh, Katrina and other weather hazards um, that have happened, catastrophes, they've, uh, some of them have survived. Yeah, most of them have survived. The economy, you know, just over years and, and uh, you know, changing demographics has taken more out than any storms have. They're extremely right. well built. A lot of the old ancient antique stuff and, and the old neighborhoods uh, survived Katrina. They survive all kinds of storms. They knew better. Mm-hmm. I think it's only in modern day arrogance that we think somehow we were. We can combat Mother Nature and build something that she won't reclaim. They didn't think that much back then. Back then, they had a little more respect for the whole thing, and they, right. and they, uh, I think, they did so a better job of building. So, they're moving up into the the time of the famine, um, uh, some uh, American ports closed. The, the they were close to the Irish ships coming in. Right. It was New Orleans open and kept open over the dish. Well, it was. That's why you had so many of them. Well, you had two factors, I believe, why you had so many of them that ended up here. Um, first, uh, you know, the first ships went to New York and Canada, and you had, you know, large loss of life. They were coming in sick. Mm-hmm. America at that time was still a very Protestant country. It was pretty much a transplanted, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture from England is culturally what it was. And so to have these waves of six starving Papists, uh, you know, trying to get in your country, I'm sure was horrifying because you had such large, large numbers of them. So the first ships that came in, you had, you know, a large loss of life. They were quarantined. It pretty much, uh, pretty soon they just started turning the ships around. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, here in New Orleans, you had ships that were loaded up with cotton primarily, uh, you know, at that time. They'd go to Europe. Uh, or England or Northern Ireland that offload and then they would fill their hulls their bow with ballast stones for ballast so the mm-hmm. ship would stay upright and a lot of New Orleans at that time were built with these ballast stones just like any wood coming down the river on a raft would be it was it's called barge wood so we do a lot of work around New Orleans and growing up doing historic renovations you were always running across the old barge wood that was you know taken taken apart from the barge and then they used it to rebuild a lot of what you see in, in, in the French Quarter right now. Well, they did the same thing with the ballast stones. Well, anyway, they found out pretty soon that they could, instead of putting stones in the hull of the ship, they could put starving humans in the hull of the mm-hmm. ship. And as long as you kept enough of them alive long enough so that you could keep the ship in ballast, then you were good. Because I'm pretty yet, sure you got, got paid before you got, got the ship. They were yeah. paid because it wasn't the, the the guy the you know the uh, immigrant paying them. It was the landowner or the government right. paying the fare to, just yeah. to get them off the island. Because yeah. it was quote unquote quote uh, the solution to the Irish problem. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. what it was. How it was considered. It was a really good way of getting rid of all these people. Finally. Anyway, so. These people were putting the hulls of these ships, and then pretty soon it was so profitable, they were making more money off of the human cargo than they were the actual cotton in the cargo going to Europe, that they start recommissioning these slave ships, because not too much earlier, just a couple decades earlier, international slave trade had been deemed illegal, mm-hmm. even though it was still going on, and, and you, you still had slavery within the countries, but it wasn't allowed internationally, I guess. So... Um, they could fill these ships up, bring them to New Orleans, and New Orleans, they could just dump them on the levee. That was it. There was no quarantine. They mm-hmm. weren't rejected. New Orleans was predominantly a Catholic city because mm-hmm. of its uh, French and, and uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, Spanish heritage. Right. Um, you know, and so there was, so they were much more welcome. And then you had some of these people, again, like Margaret Hardy, that were just, uh, you know, an Irish lady from, uh, from Dublin who had a lot of loss of life in her, in her, in her life. 
uh, you know, lost her kids and her husband due to sickness. But anyway, so people like her opened up orphanages, and then they placed head tax on the on the newly arrived Irish to pay for the Irish that were coming in behind them. And then also a lot of the Irish were able to come in through New Orleans and go back up the river to go back into New York to look for family because they okay. couldn't get in through New York. And we, to this day, we get lots of people who come back. They know the stories. They know the connection from the Irish family in New Orleans. And they come back from the Northeast knowing their family came in through New Orleans back. And then a lot of them went up the river, you know, 48 and a mule, uh, you know, and, the, and just looking for a new start. And then a lot of them uh, stayed here in New Orleans and became part of the community. So when you say that they arrived in New Orleans and that they literally could be just dropped on the dock, right? Um, off and, uh, then there would not have been much paperwork involved. No, I mean the only records you have are the New Orleans coming into the ship logs on those ships. And did they have manifests with lists of names? Um, yeah, I mean, you can, you'll can you see a ship, yeah, you, there's ship logs with names. And, that would, and so you would know which, from which port in Ireland it had sailed, right. Right. Uh, when it sailed, and the number of people that were on started out, and the number of the people that arrived. Right. And they weren't always the same number. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I think most of them came from Cove, I guess, right? I well, mean, they would have shipped from Cove, uh, but they would have, like, the Irish story on the other side is, like you said, they started out here then with the, to head to New York to try to connect. Well, likewise, they had come from various parts of Ireland to Cove because right. that was where the ship was leaving from. After being at Beast down at Plymouth, uh, it would stop in a Cove. Uh, and pick up, yes. Yeah, so that they could be from any part of Ireland. Even I know that uh, there would have been people as far up even as Donegal would have w- walked to Cove right. if they made it that far and didn't die on the way. Right. So right. So I mean, the only way I guess you'd research. <coughs> I mean, you know, you could find the families back in Ireland. It seems to be pretty uh, not easy, but you know. Because uh, of the parish records, you can find families. Yeah, and, and even then, uh, with the parish, uh, but, uh, the state records only start in 1860s. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So the registration of births, deaths, marriages uh, only start in the 1860s. And by the time you get to America, if it's not on a ship log, and then if it's not a family that stayed in one of the parishes or became part of the, you know, the municipality, then you really don't, you know, you really don't use, you know. You really don't know where they went or right. um, so how long they stayed here. Given those challenges then, again, I'll come back to how much archival material were you able to get your hands on and where did you find it? Well, we worked with the um, historic collection here in New Orleans predominantly. They were, right. they were really good and... Um, I mean, that's all you have is whatever the municipality records are. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, like I said, there was a big census done in 1860, right before the Civil War. Right. Um, and and then people like my family and, you know, who, who uh, have a strong sense of, um, you know, oral traditions. Yeah, because I know I've looked at some of those census documentation and it lists the place of birth as Ireland. Yeah. Um, not, not without saying where in Ireland. Right. And the only conclusion you can sometimes draw is that yes, if it's Orion, it's probably Tipperary. Yeah. Or if it's a Kennedy, it's probably uh, Wexford. Right. Uh, so if um, if you go to the graveyards too, there's one graveyard in particular 
Uh, and the Irish, for some reason, seem to like to put their place of birth on their headstones. So you mm-hmm. can see they're very proud of it, I guess. You could see this person died. He was born in, you know, you know Donegal or wherever he was born from. And during the, you know, and again, you had these big cholera epidemics. You had uh, a lot of yellow fever epidemics. You had so many Irish coming over at that time who were sick. They're not immune to it. And so they suffered the largest loss of life. Um, uh, so you can go into the graveyard and you can see these families just losing family members. You know, the father died, the kid died, and all within a few months. And then, you know, six months later, you know, another few kids died. And then you may see the next cholera epidemic or the, or the yellow fever outbreak a couple of years later. And then that took out the mother and the remaining kids. And that's all in the same headstones. And a lot mm-hmm. of the, uh, what's that? Yeah. So then you mentioned about the um, the orphanage or the being set up. Um, that uh, to take care of the families. Right. I would imagine that there would be a little bit more documentation there that the, non, the yeah. nuns would have been in some way right. meticulous. The Sisters of Charity ran right. most of those orphanages. And were you able to get access to any of that uh, documentation? Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, actually, we didn't research anything with the orphanages. To be right. Um, because again, I would say you know that's usually while if the accuracy would be high, but not maybe a hundred percent. Yeah. But we, but we really we're not you know genealogists here. Right. You know, and and so we pretty much are just uh, presenting and telling the broader story. The big picture story. The big pictures. You know. You know, identifying some of the most important uh, characters in in the New Orleans story that I believe is are, are the kind of things. Uh, they should be teaching the kids in school. You know, there's people who rose above adversity, didn't look at themselves as victims. They were proud to be Americans. They were strong members of the community. They, they rose out of adversity. Uh, you know, they were, they were extremely generous and concerned about others and, 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 and things like hunger and civil rights. Um, you know, so that's a huge legacy and tradition of very important characters in New Orleans that you know nothing or hear nothing about. You know, the kids know all about the most pop, the, the pop star or the singer or the professional sports player, or they learn about you know some you know you know maybe it's some quote unquote Ameri- you know you know some hero in the country that don't get me wrong is extremely important but it's less relevant and less identifiable mm-hmm. than somebody who grew up in their own town that may, may, may or may not even have the same name as somebody in their family does because they're all Irish and there's so many Irish names in this town. Um, those are the people I think that the kids should be taught about and we all should be having conversations of and we should all try to emulate, uh, you know. Now you, did, you mentioned there a moment ago that uh, this is about some of the people uh, who were a critical part of the New Orleans history? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who? Some of, who are some of these people? Um, well, you know, uh, uh, um, McDonough is one of them. Right. That, uh, he used to actually had owned this property um, at one point in time. That that was what made this property so interesting to us. Well, people like him who. Um, you know, had 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 uh, was one I believe one of the wealthiest individuals. Um, uh, you know, wealthy um, single independent uh, landowner, um, and so he donated a lot of his land to the city upon his death uh, for public schools. So a lot of these public schools that we had, there were John McDonough one, John McDonough two, three, whatever. Now they've renamed a lot of those schools over the years, unfortunately. 
Um, but people like him uh, did a lot to give back to the community right. from his wealth. Okay. And then in any community over a period of time, there are characters. I'm sure New Orleans had uh, numerous characters that were of Irish uh, birth or extraction. Right, right. Um, who would it, were, were, are there any notables that uh, you tell of? In ancient history or, or in even in uh, both, but relative, like even in, in various periods, was there, were there any people, let's say, in the pre famine that um, are, were notorious for one reason or other? And well, then I, think, I think Bloody O'Reilly oh, yeah. is definitely one of my favorite characters. We actually have a drink named after him here. Okay. That's what we try to do here. We've got this little pub in the back where we all of our drinks are either drinks that have been in my family for generations or they're or something that illustrate, for example, the Gaelic ginger Luke told you about illustrate, uh-huh. you know, the treatment for cholera that the Irish, uh, you know, were given to the Irish. Um, uh, and we so we take some of the um, some of the ingredients from that treatment, and we've made a really nice cocktail out of it, or something like the bloody O'Reilly that we do. And again, it tends to be a conversation and awareness. Uh, but the, so bloody O'Reilly was a great character, you know. Um, when Spain had bought the colony from France, it was about a three thousand person colony. It was pretty dismal. It was quite a bit of a failure. It, but it was critically important to um, to Spain and its New World Empire. Uh, the, the first Spanish governor stayed on the ship, re- refused to get off, couldn't get off the ship. He was scared because he had a bunch of Frenchmen here who were revolutionaries. There was probably a dozen of them, and they refused to cede allegiance to Spain. They refused to fly the Spanish flag. And from what I understand by international law, if you didn't fly the flag of the country within so many days and you really didn't own the land, anybody could come in and lay claim to it. Okay. So it was a real problem. So the Spanish governor wouldn't get off the ship. So they finally uh, pulled him out and they brought in uh, O'Reilly, who got off the ship and called the uh, revolutionary Frenchmen in to hear their grievances. And he listened to them and he said, okay. And he took, I think he took a dozen of, out of a dozen of them, he took nine of them and strung them up and hung them uh, <laughs> on an oak tree. He, li- he did listen to the reason. Yeah, and, there, and there's a plaque under, right next to the myth on Esplanade that then says this is the site and tells the story about O'Reilly. Now, it doesn't tell you O'Reilly was a guy born in, in Ireland, that he was an Irishman, but, uh, you know, and then, uh, and then he went on to form the, the build the Cabildo. That's still, uh, you know, important, uh, you know, um, Building here, a lot of the institutions, our, our, you know, our council, and a lot of the institutions to this day are all um, derived and come out of, of what O'Reilly had put into place for the city as a new colony. <laughs> and then under O'Reilly's rule um, and success of Spanish governors, it, it became one of the most important successful, um, uh, you know, colonies in the entire uh, Spanish Empire. But yeah, so he was he was quite a character. <laughs> Right. You know, can imagine how that conversation went. <laughs> so you're not happy with something around here. We we can fix that. <laughs> so my wife's family's from Spain, right? So I tell her all the time, you see that? You know, they have the Spanish and they call an Irishman in to get a job done. That's usually how it works. <laughs> so then um, I'm sure around the time of the famine, the 1840s, there must be some tremendous stories of people who went above and beyond to try and help others and yeah well Margaret Hardy again is one of one of my favorites she's the most illustrious uh she um you know uh 
she came to New Orleans. Uh, I believe she had just lost her her, uh, her uh, husband. She had lost a couple of the kids. Her husband was sick. He went back to Ireland to try to get better. The doctors recommended for some reason he go back to Ireland for the climate, and then he died in Ireland. So she's alone. She's penniless. And from that, uh, with no family, total grief, would, would send most people into depression and bitterness. What she did is uh, she started working with the Sisters of Charity, and she ended up, over the course of her lifetime, when she passed away, had the largest steam bakery in the world, and shipping her biscuits and goods all the way to Europe that were so popular, had the largest dairy farm. Um, in the whole city that was used, the milk was used to feed the orphanages. She had, had died uh, as a multimillionaire, and this was a woman back then, when women didn't run businesses, and sure didn't have millions and millions of dollars. And, um, and but all, everything she did, and all of her, and she owned a coffee shop, she owned all kinds of enterprises and houses, and she still lived, uh, even though she didn't uh, become a nun, she worked closely with the nuns, lived like the nuns, um, she donated all of that to the children when she died, and she's, mm. they say she signed her will with an X, so they imply that maybe she was illiterate, mm. which I don't quite believe, to be honest with you. My theory is it was a sign of uh, indignation, mm -hmm. you know, it was a sign of, you know, I'm not important, why would I put my name on a document, mm -hmm. and so she put an X on it, mm. but anyway... The, so I just think she's one of those amazing characters that um, have given so much back to the community for the right reasons. You know. yeah. And moving on then, as time moved on um, and Norley has developed its own identity, uh, how did the Irish um, survive? Because there would have been an influx of... Uh, Canadians, French Canadians as well, or when did that happen? Well, a lot of the French Canadians, that's South Louisiana you're talking about, okay. right? Those are the Canadians. So South Louisiana is a bit different from New Orleans. Okay. South Louisiana is the Cajuns that you hear about. When you hear about Creole, um, that's that's more in the city in New Orleans. Okay. Um, you know, we get a lot of, you know, I, I believe I've, I've discovered a, a term I like to use, um, for a lot of the uh, Creoles that, that we have in the city, I call them Celtic Creoles. We've had lots of these, these ladies come in who are um, mixed race, are beautiful, uh, you know, light skin, blue eyes, and a lot of here in New Orleans that's considered Creole and they're thought to be French and Spanish, okay. which is true. But so many of them come in and they're Irish, yeah. right? They come in, one lady who come in recently, uh, you know, she had a family Bible. And she had an Irish great-great-grandfather who jumped off a ship in the Mississippi River as an indentured servant with the numbers tattooed on him, I believe, and, and got work on a, on, a, uh, on a plantation, living with the slaves, working with the slaves, pretty much treated as a slave, married, uh, had children that were half Irish and half African or black. They married first-generation Irishmen in the same manner, and she's descended from these people. So we have so many of those types in this city mm -hmm. that you don't even realize they're Irish. Mm -hmm. and, and again, these are these stories that get overlooked mm -hmm. that are important parts. Same thing with the San Patricios. You know, you get a lot of people from Texas or Mexico that come mm -hmm. here. They have blue eyes, you know, light-colored skin, mm -hmm. and they, they've heard the grandmother talk about Irish, which confuses them because they don't realize. Well, the San Patricios is this whole group of, our, of Irish that had migrated, a lot of them coming in through New Orleans, a lot of them went down to Texas on land, lived there for generations, and then with the Mexican-American War, they sided with Mexico, which was, which uh, again, pre-Civil War, antebellum, 
United States was predominantly Protestant. Mexico was, was a Catholic country, mm -hmm. so a lot of these Irish Catholics sided with Mexico. They were being treated better uh, by the Mexicans and fought for the Mexicans. And um, But then they were called traitors, even though they weren't, and they were treated horribly. And there's lots of great stories we've got that we do have some literature that's a little better research than, than, than some other things. But anyway, so when, when they come in and you tell them the story and you show them some of the books, they're, they just, they're, you know, their eyes open up and, and, and the light goes off. And they go, oh my, it all makes sense now. And someone, one of them came in recently and said, I live in a county down there called San Patricio. And mm -hmm. I said, well, go to the Alamo. If you go to the Alamo, mm -hmm. I think there's like 20% uh, of those guys, I don't remember the numbers, mm -hmm. but a large number of the guys that died in the Alamo were born in Ireland. That's right. So that, that's a whole, you know, contemporary story. It is, and I know the chieftains have recorded Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Now and then. So, you know, again, those are th that's the sense of awareness I talk about. They just get people thinking and talking to go do their own research and develop a sense of identity and have a better appreciation of how far we've come as a country and how we have so much in common and how our stories of over overcoming, uh, you know, every, every uh, immigrant group, every generation, everybody, uh, you know, has, has stories of, of how to overcome adversity. Um, that's, that's the human story. And so I think in terms of, of the Irish perspective, the Irish perspective, especially here in New Orleans, does a wonderful job of telling the human story. The human story is often told in music and song, and the Irish have always brought music with them. Right. So that would have been, they would have been bringing music, um, again, back at the early 1800s and during the famine. How influential were the Irish to the music scene here? Yeah, a lot of the early Irish, a lot of the early jazz, if you look at the jazz bands, a lot of them were Irish. They were mm -hmm. Irish names. You think of them, you think of Louis Armstrong, you know, and you think of those guys. Um, and then you even think of the Italians that came in, you know, beginning of the 20th century. They're probably the most recent immigrant group, quite a um, large immigrant group. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of those earlier jazz players um, were Irish guys that have Irish names. Some of them may come from Ireland. Um, I read a number of years back, there was an etymologist, and he actually said the word jazz uh, was a derivation of an Irish word. Yeah, it, it would make sense to me. Uh, he said that uh, the word for hot in Irish is chess, huh. depending from where you would come, it, it could say, you could say You know, I'm not a musician, but that's something else that I think there should be more research, uh, you know, done on, because, I mean, only now do people start to make the connection between um, uh, what is it, um, what's the music in, in the Appalachians yes. you know, that has the Irish uh, bluegrass, yes. that kind of thing. You know, bluegrass and the tradition of moonshine. I mean, if that's not Irish, I don't know what is, right? <laughs> I mean, that was an earlier generation. That was probably a lot of the Scotch Irish. Yeah, well, it is. that's know, what they said. The, the Hillbillies is their Hill Williams. Yeah, yeah. Which is William of Orange. And that's where the term okay. hillbilly comes from. But, but you know, um, so, you know, the 18th century was the story of the Ulster Irish, and the 19th century the story of the, of the Southern Irish. Right. You know, but it's, it's kind of a similar story, really, in a lot of respects. Uh, but you're right. I think, I'm not a musician, but I think that's, that's a shame that more research isn't done into these Irish characters that, that were fun, that were instrumental in the foundation of jazz and just the development of the music forms that we have here. And when you mentioned Louis Armstrong, uh, I found a track and I have it in my library and I might insert it at this point. Uh, an interesting, like a, a real jazz piece by Louis Armstrong. Which, uh, there was a period here in New Orleans where um, 
um, where you know the Irish were uh, were very very instrumental in the local um, theaters and, and again the, the music scene like you're talking about and I read one where I don't know how it was in Dublin but it was similar in New Orleans I assume it may have been similar in, in, in Ireland but the, you know the reporters would love to go to court to listen to the, all these yeah. poor Irish right because they're always in trouble they were fighting they had heavy accents they had stories and the reporters would love to go to the court and hear them talk to the judge to explain their condition or the situation or why they keep showing up in court or why they didn't you know pay their rent or why they got in a fight and pretty soon there was like a little uh, maybe cottage in the spirit of reporters that were just writing down the stories the Irish were telling the judge every week you know, and publishing them well, yeah. Matthew, what I want to do is I will take a little break and we'll play Louis Armstrong and we'll come back and maybe uh, chat a bit more about that, uh, that aspect of it and if some of those stories that we made it to the newsprint and we've got to hand on those. You are listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home Abroad and we're chatting with Matthew O'Hearn about the Irish in New Orleans and this is Louis Armstrong and Irish Black Bottom. Chatting with Batuahan, and we're in the Irish Cultural Museum and hearing about the story of the Irish. Uh, Matthew, the Civil War had a major impact on North America, on America, and the Irish were on both sides of the, 
relying on that. Right. That would have had an impact down here as for part of the story. That's right, because, you know, the Civil War started in 1861. You know, in 1830s, that canal you talked about, uh, the New Basin Canal was dug. You had the famine uh, in, in the 40s and 47. And by 61, you had a large, large number of our Irish in New Orleans and a large number of them uh, in New York and Northeast and still coming off the boats. So on the north, they inscripted them. They had, they had uh, you know, um, draft riots to mm-hmm. force them into service. But here in the south, you had people like my mother's family who had two great-grandfathers in their family who still have the letters in the family talking about their service and, 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 and their fighting and their frontline action writing back home. And these were these were large large Irish contingent of Irish. And so a lot of these um, these uh, battalions and companies out of New Orleans were Irish guys, and some of them were predominantly Irish battalions. I mean, one of them, I, I don't remember which regiment it was, went into the war with 1,500 men, came back literally with 40. They literally fight to the last man, and that's, that's something predominantly the Irish were doing. Mm-hmm. And they were used as shock troops by, you know, the Protestant, uh, you know, American general would send these these poor Irish in, make them hold, you know, use the shock troops and frontline battles. They'd go in and take a position, and then they'd have to fall back because nobody was going to go back them up. And then they'd go in and take that position again. Mm-hmm. So, but the Irish in the South and predominantly the Confederates in the South were were fighting an invading force. Mm-hmm. Which is very similar to what was going on in Ireland, mm-hmm. in Ireland, and their experience with the wars there, and the and the English invading their country and their territories and feeling occupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the exact same thing in the South. I mean, Ireland at that time, uh, you know, were were abolitionists. The uh, the country, um, I think, O'Connell, the Great Emancipator, mm-hmm. uh, was anti-slavery. I mean, right. these Irish would have had an anti-slavery position. So they weren't necessarily fighting for reasons of slavery, as we're led to believe today. They were fighting for this occupying force that was, the, that, was that is, you know, um, nostalgic or, or, or exactly what they had just left Ireland from. And yet, they were on both sides, like piled down here. Well, yeah. there you go. So they call it a Celtic War. So yeah. there's stories of, of, of they, they were on the front battle line at night and they'd scream across the river or the front lines and ask about family back home because these mm-hmm. you know kids on both sides of the of opposing forces were from the same villages or areas yeah. and knew each other. Yeah. And then the next day they'd commence slaughtering each yeah. other. Yeah. And the stories about one of them swam over to see some of the family or friends from back home and they and he was you know ragged and and, and you know, his shoes were worn out and, and all the northern troops were well fed and fat and happy. And they tried to convince him to desert. Why don't you desert? He said, of course, there's no way I would never do that. Yeah. He, he, was, he was horrified that he was even asked or trying to be enticed to desert. Yeah. And then he swam back across the river and the next day they went to slaughtering each other. Yeah. Because after the Civil War then both sides came together for the Fenian invasion of Canada. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it didn't they never quit, did they? <laughs> so, well, they'd been literally killing each other a few years before they joined yeah. forces to... But, and, and, you know, the whole idea of the Southern gentleman is a Celtic notion. There's some research done on, um, on you know, if you look at Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, you uh-huh. know, her father was a guy from Ireland. So the, this whole idea of the Southern gentleman uh, is a Celtic one, um, some researchers will argue. So you did mention there that, uh, well, the Irish would have been uh, abolitionists. Uh, I've seen and, you know, no history is pure and no, no, hist- uh, not, no nation is pure. There were Irish slave owners also. Oh, yeah, there were black slave owners too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, everybody, anybody who had money, like nowadays, first thing you do when you get a lot of money is, I guess, you buy a big house or a fancy car or, or maybe a piece of equipment that'll help you be more successful. I think that's what they did back there. Any black person who became successful, and, and this whole neighborhood we have here of Treme, we're, we're wealthy black owners. The first black millionaire was here in New Orleans. Mm. A lot of the blacks were slave owners. So if an Irishman made a lot of money and could put together land and wanted to increase his wealth, uh, and if he could afford it, because the entire industry and economy was run on, on manual labor, mm-hmm. uh, and then of course he'd be a slave owner. Um, but, uh, so you mentioned that uh, while the public schools uh, had McDonald's name on numerous, and that has changed uh, over time, uh, you can go to uh, a lot of North American cities, Canadian cities, and uh, the names of the streets are very much Irish names. Like where we right. are in, in Ottawa, there's O'Connor, there's Murray, right. uh, Sparks, and that's not so much the case. Certainly not. Well, we're in the French Quarter here, but that's not so much the case here, where the the Irish are remembered to names on streets. Well, I think you know. I think it's, we have a different history, you know, in America uh, because of our colonial past and because we were so eclectic from the very beginning. I mean, when the Spanish came over and the city, the old French city, had burned down and they rebuilt the whole city. That's why it's a French Quarter with Spanish architecture, right? But they 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 intermarried with the local population. They didn't try to make it a Spanish culture. They tried to, you know, uh, become part of the culture that was evolving and become, and you know, it's all about economics at the end of the day, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's money. New Orleans was always very wealthy, very successful. You know, people came here to make a lot of money. There were plenty of jobs. That's why we have these huge neighborhoods of these gorgeous old uh, Victorian homes and, and whatnot. So when everybody's making a lot of money, they, they become less hyphenated in their identity, right? They become, and then when after the American uh, Louisiana Purchase and, and the expansion of America, people wanted to be American. They, they, did, they didn't want to be anything else. And there were so many groups there in America that were doing so well that we consider minority groups today that they learned to get along. And I think to this day that culture still permeates. We, New Orleans is still known um, you know, for people still being able to celebrate their neighborhoods, their identity, but, but we all feel like we're New Orleans and Americans first. You know, people ask me, well, what was it like growing up uh, in an Irish neighborhood or from an Irish family? I said, I didn't grow up Irish. I grew up American. You know, you grew up back then uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance and, and talking about commonalities uh, that we all have. And then you go home and you would tell the stories and the heritage and the food and the names and, and that kind of thing. So I think that's what's changed just very recently. Um, and then again, I think because New Orleans has had so many strong uh, cultural groups and neighborhoods here, we've learned to love each other and appreciate each other and celebrate with each other on each other's holidays. And therefore, you, you don't see as many people wearing their identity on their sleeves because you don't have those many sleeves. <laughs> you have too many people claiming to be too many different things. And again, you know, I think what's wonderful about New Orleans, people come to New Orleans, and even though we've had a huge demographic shift after Katrina, they come to New Orleans to be New Orleanians. Whereas I think a lot of cities or countries or whatnot, they go to the city and they try to make that city the country they left or the home they left or, or what their identity is. And I think we've been really fortunate uh, you know, um, because of our strong uh, cultural heritage with music and, and, and many other things. Um, Irish being just one of them. 
when you mentioned that cultural heritage, um, I know there is a school of Irish dance here, as far as I recall. Yeah, Joni Mugavan is. Yeah. She does an amazing job. And uh, there's a few Irish pubs. And over the last 25, 30 years, certainly since River Dance, and with uh, an awful lot of very strong international Irish artists, um, the new breed of Irish is probably, uh, or the new Ireland is now projected more right. than would have been. Um, is, is that New Ireland something that the um, New Orleans Irish can relate to, would you say, or is it, uh, you know what I mean? So are you saying do Irish in New Orleans like myself, New Orleans Irish, can they relate to the modern Ireland today? Yeah, yeah. I think it's difficult. Right. I think it's very difficult. I think Ireland, I'll tell you a story. When I go back over there and meet friends of mine, especially when I was a little bit younger, boy, I would have the same exact world view as their 80 or 90 year old grandfather. You know? And it shows we're in a bit of a time warp. You know, I think we reflect more of, of, of your grandfather and even older. Uh, generations down here in New Orleans because of the separation. Um, I like to, you know, um, you know, a similar analogy I think is, you know, the French Canadians in South Louisiana speak a dialect of France, uh, French that most modern French wouldn't even understand or, or recognize. It's, it's antique. And I really think our worldview here in New Orleans has been antique. And I think modern Ireland has changed dramatically. I know you guys have probably seen it. I've just seen it in my limited experience with the country. Um, and I think Ireland, you know, the pendulum always swings. And I think the next generation will rediscover its roots. And, and, and because things change so quick and rapid now, I think it won't take generations and generations and to rediscover something. I think within a generation or two, it'll become rediscovered. I've had uh, an Irish guy come here and do an art exhibit and go home and he says, man, I, 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 I'm more proud of my country and have learned more uh, of a historical perspective here in New Orleans with you than I did back in Dublin. And that is shocking because just 10, 20 years ago, it would have been the opposite. You know, there are Irish guys in New Orleans where I was telling them that. They were telling me more about the Civil War and politics and world events, how it affects America, than the average American knew. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know what that rapid changes. And then we had a group of people from London, England in here. And we have Herland on the TV. Had never seen Herland in their life. Had never, had no idea. It was totally like that if we're looking at, you know, something from a, a third world country in, in Africa or something, you know? I mean, it's something they'd never heard or seen. And these are people that grew up and lived in London. Mm -hmm. I think that explains the crisis that's going on with Brexit and the mm -hmm. backstop and that whole conversation mm -hmm. where, they, you know, they're creating a hard border and they're making these huge economic uh, decisions that impact, uh, you know, a country economically that they don't even understand. Mm -hmm. they, they've probably never even visited. They don't even know what their huge national sport is. But so you mentioned there that the uh, next generation um, are emerging into a different uh, perspective. You, one of you, you said your driving forces here was that you could provide something that would help your kids get a better appreciation of their 
linked to the past. Well, that's it. It's all can be lost in a generation. You know, and the way I feel about the Irish story in New Orleans is what my father used to tell me about Cuba. He'd say, you know, if you really want to understand the, the you know, the, the, the New World and what the, what the Spanish Empire was all about and how that relates to modern history, you need to understand Cuba. And he was so right. You know, I studied Cuba for a little while, and boy, it really was the missing link. It connected all the dots throughout, you know, uh, throughout a large period of time, and I feel like Ireland was like that. I think if you, at least from from a New Orleans perspective, I think it, 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 it's a missing link. It connects a lot of the dots. It puts things in proper perspective of, of not only America but specifically of New Orleans. And I think if you get a better understanding of Irish history itself and and, and the parts that Irish has pl- have played in that. It, it connects all the dots in world history and, and the different cultures and movements of people and wars and battles and then how, how you know, we, America, has benefited from that, quite honestly. And then, you, and then you see the Irish and the role they played in New Orleans during the Manifest Destiny roles and all the way through the Civil War. And, and, and then all of a sudden you have a better appreciation of all the other different cultures and immigrant groups and what they have suffered and what the immigrant groups today are suffering. And it just, just all seems to make sense. And there's nothing else I've been taught in school my entire life that, that helped me make that much sense over who I am and how I got here and who the people around me are than the story of the Irish and New Orleans. And so that's what I'm trying to pass on to the kids most immediately, my immediate family. And then we did this in the French Quarter, and we have a nice pub here, and we make it something that's fun and exciting and interesting. And I feel like we've done more to, to raise awareness and communicate the story and appreciation, not just for our culture, but for the city and others, through, through you know, our drinks and our names and, and people like yourself than we have with just some of the static displays and documentaries that we've developed that nobody wants to sit and watch because no one has an attention span anymore. So they won't look at the documentaries. They don't want to read too much on the wall. They're not going to sit and read the books. And if they charge you five bucks to come in and try to support us, they complain. So you know what the hell with that? We built a, a pub back here with, with you know, all the Irish whiskeys you've ever seen and, and these great names and family stories. And, and now everybody's learning something, whether they like it or not, right? And they all just, and then they get an opportunity to tell their story. And that's an ideal spot for us to wrap up because we are sitting in a, a pub on Conti Street. Uh, you can be found, you're open at 8 in the mornings. Yes, sir, at 9 in the mornings. 9 in the mornings. Yeah. Until? Uh, until 6 o'clock during the week and until 10.30 on Fridays and Saturdays. And you're providing a selection of drinks and there's coffee there. Um, and yeah, we uh, do. Let me say real quick, we do an Irish coffee that uh, my um, grandmother's father made. His name is Charles McGuire. He had a, uh, an Irish coffee house on the corner of Royal and Canal Street in the 1890s. And I've got a picture of him on the wall here. And that same Irish coffee that he made and my grandmother made for us as kids is the same Irish coffee that we serve today. And, and you're not telling anyone the rest. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, and you have a website? Uh, we do. What's the and website, Luke? Uh, St. Pat's Irish Coffee. St. Pat's Irish And you're on Facebook? Uh, uh, yeah. Yep. So, again, if someone goes on to Google and does a search for the Irish Cultural Museum in New Orleans, you get all the coordinates, you get the hours, and uh, you get the opportunity to come in and see the wonderful history. And St. Pat's is in the back of the Irish Culture Museum across the patio. Fantastic. Matthew, thanks for It's been fascinating. 
most interesting and really appreciate you taking the time. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Austin.